welcome back to the Calm Cafe. I'm Adam, and I'd first like to start with a thank you. Thank you for all your kind comments I've been sent so far. Mainly from family and friends as this podcast starts to find its feet. I say find its feet, we're only on episode three. We're barely crawling yet. There'll be plenty of time to run. That said, we're now available on both Spotify and Apple Podcast now, so soon to be across all streaming platforms. Then we'll be able to say those famous words. Available from wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) Now won't that be something? Just know you were here at the beginning. And another thank you must go to you. There's a whole lot of material and sleeping help out there. And tonight, in this moment, you've chosen here. The Calm Cafe. It's great to have you here. So once again, thank you. It's important to give and show thanks. It's something we often forget to show outwardly, even though we may feel it inside. A sincere thank you is very much like, well, like a smile. or forced or bought it has to be given given with gratitude and appreciation a piece of homework for you No, this isn't school, but I just fancied throwing this in, is tomorrow, or the day after, when you say thank you to someone, really mean it. Really feel it, and see if the receiver reacts in a different way than they normally would. Maybe they won't, as... Maybe you already show thanks so enthusiastically. But maybe, just maybe, you'll make that person's life that little bit better. 
Why not try it? It can't do any harm, can it? You know what else can't do any harm? A nice hot cup of herbal tea. Step inside the calm cafe and take a seat in your favorite armchair with its matching footstool at just the right height. As you walked in, you felt the warmth on your nose and cheeks. Not so much as to mist up your forehead, but just, just enough to add a little color to your face after the icy cold breeze you stepped in from. And look to your side. On a small round table at your elbow, there's a tall glass cup with steam rising from it. Ginger and honey with a tiny squeeze of lemon to balance it all out. The warming ginger for not only the senses as you lift it beneath your nose and breathe in the warmth as it tingles, but the honey and lemon to soothe your throat from the wintry effects, to calm the irritation from that cough that's going round. Do you have it too? <laughs> it seems everyone does. Blow across the surface of the tea and breathe in the aroma as the airflow doubles back on itself inside the tall rim of the glass. We're nearing tonight's tale, a short story which really piqued my interest immediately. Here's the very short description which grabbed my attention. To translate writings, you need a key to the code. And if the last writer of Martian died 40,000 years before the first writer of Earth was born, how could the Martian be translated? Sounds great, eh? I can't wait to get started. But before we do, let's start with a short relaxation exercise. A visualization technique. We're going to slowly fill ourselves with warmth. Healing heat 
to keep away the winter chills. So lay back, and if you haven't already, allow your eyes to slowly close. Hold your eyelids softly, not scrunched up. And relax your forehead. Relax your whole face with your mouth still closed. Drop your jaw slightly. Your head begins to feel bigger, longer, but with more room. Do you feel that? Open but closed at the same time. And let's start to feel that warmth washing over us from the tips of our toes. Starting with the big toes and slowly folding over the top of your feet and the soles as well. That soft warmth as if bathing in the midday summer sun. Feel it as it rises over your ankles and onto the calves and the shins. A soft heat building through the legs. It's not uncomfortable. It's cozy, warming. over the knees and the thighs as your whole legs start to feel that healing warmth. Onto the hips, the pelvis, the tummy and the lower back. that warming feeling rising slowly through your spine and round from your lower ribs into your chest and up onto your shoulders. The heat being met at the front from the warming waves arriving from over your shoulder blades. With no effort at all, the heat starts to spread upwards along the side of your neck and across your throat. That gentle warming enveloping around your jaw, your cheeks, your temples and across your forehead. 
dipping slowly down to reach the tip of your nose. Softly, the whole warming process is complete as we feel it reach the very top of our head. You're nice and cozy and warm. Martha Dane paused, looking up at the purple-tinged copper sky. The wind had shifted since noon, while she had been inside, and the dust storm that was sweeping the high deserts to the east was now blowing out over Syrtis. The sun, magnified by the haze, was a gorgeous magenta ball, as large as the sun of Terra, at which she could look directly. Tonight, some of that dust would come sifting down from the upper atmosphere, to add another film to what had been burying the city for the last 50 thousand years. The red lowers lay over everything, covering the streets and the open spaces of park and plaza hiding the small houses that had been crushed and pressed flat under it, and the rubble that had come down from the tall buildings when roofs had caved in and walls had toppled outward. Here, where she stood, the ancient streets were a hundred to a hundred and fifty feet below the surface. The breach they had made in the wall of the building behind her had opened into the sixth story. She could look down on the cluster of prefabricated huts and sheds on the brush-grown flat that had been the waterfront when this place had been a seaport on the ocean that was now Sirtis Depression. Already the bright metal was thinly coated with red dust. She thought, again, of what clearing this city would mean in terms of time and labor, of people and supplies and equipment brought across 50 million miles of space. They'd have to use machinery. There was no other way it could be done. bulldozers and power shovels and drag lines. They were fast, but they were rough and indiscriminate. 
she remembered the digs around Harappa and Mohenjo-daro in the Indus Valley and the careful, patient native laborers, the painstaking foremen, the pickmen and the spade men, the long files of basket men carrying away the earth, slow and primitive as the civilization whose ruins they were uncovering. Yes, but she could count on the fingers of one hand the times one of her pickmen had damaged a valuable object in the ground. If it hadn't been for the underpaid and uncomplaining native laborer, archaeology would still be back where, well, where Winkleman had found it. But on Mars, there was no native labor. The last Martian had died 500 centuries ago. Something started banging like a machine gun, four or five hundred yards to her left. A solenoid jackhammer. Tony Latimer must have decided which building he wanted to break into next. She became conscious, then, of the awkward weight of her equipment and began redistributing it shifting the straps of her oxy-tank pack, slinging the camera from one shoulder and the board and drafting tools from the other, gathering the notebooks and sketchbooks under her left arm. She started walking down the road over hillocks of buried rubble, around snags of wall jutting up out of the lowest, past buildings still standing, some of them already breached and explored, and across the brush-grown flat to the huts. There were ten people in the main office room of Hut One when she entered. As soon as she had disposed of her oxygen equipment, she lit a cigarette, her first since noon, then looked from one to another of them. Old Selim von Olmhorst, the Turco-German, one of her two fellow archaeologists, sitting at the end of a long table against the farther wall, smoking his big curved pipe and going through a loose-leaf notebook. The girl ordnance officer, Sachiko Karamitsu, between two droplights at the other end of the table, her head bent over her work. Colonel Hubert Penrose, the Space Force CO, and Captain Field, the intelligence officer, listening to the report of one of the Airdyne pilots returned from his afternoon survey flight. A couple of girl lieutenants from Signals going over the script of the evening telecast to be transmitted to the Cyrano, an orbit 5,000 miles off planet and relayed from thence 
to Terra via Luna. Sid Chamberlain, the Transspace News Serviceman, was with them. Like Selim and herself, he was a civilian. He was advertising the fact with a white shirt and a sleeveless blue sweater. And Major Lindemann, the engineer officer, and one of his assistants, arguing over some plans on a drafting board. She hoped drawing a pint of hot water to wash her hands and sponge off her face, that they were doing something about the pipeline. She started to carry the notebooks and sketchbooks over to where Selim von Olmhorst was sitting. And then, as she always did, she turned aside and stopped to watch Sachiko. The Japanese girl was restoring what had been a book 50,000 years ago. Her eyes were masked by a binocular loop. The black headband invisible against her glossy black hair and she was picking delicately at the crumpled page with a hair fine wire set in a handle of copper tubing. Finally, loosening a particle as tiny as a snowflake, she grasped it with tweezers, placed it on the sheet of transparent plastic on which she was reconstructing the page and set it with a mist of fixative from a little spray gun. It was sheer joy to watch her. Every moment was as graceful and precise as though done to music after being rehearsed a hundred times. Hello, Martha. It isn't cocktail time yet, is it? The girl at the table spoke without raising her head, almost without moving her lips, as though she was afraid that the slightest breath would disturb the flaky stuff in front of her. No, it's only 15.30. I finished my work over there. I didn't find any more books if that's good news for you. Sachiko took off the loop and leaned back in her chair. Her palms cupped over her eyes. No, I like doing this. I call it micro jigsaw puzzles. This book here really is a mess. 
Selim found it lying open with some heavy stuff on top of it. The pages were simply crushed. She hesitated briefly. If only it would mean something after I did it. There could be a faintly critical overtone to that. As she replied, Martha realized that she was being defensive. It will, someday. Look how long it took to read Egyptian hieroglyphics, even after they had the Rosetta Stone. Sachiko smiled. Yes, I know. But they did have the Rosetta Stone. And we don't. There is no Rosetta Stone, not anywhere on Mars. A whole race, a whole species, died while the first Cro-Magnon cave artist was daubing pictures of reindeer and bison. And across 50,000 years and 50 million miles, there was no bridge of understanding. find one. There must be something, somewhere, that will give us the meaning of a few words and will use them to pry meaning out of more words, and so on. We may not live to learn this language, but we'll make a start. And someday, somebody will. Sashiko took her hands from her eyes, being careful not to look toward the unshaded light and smiled again. This time, Martha was sure that it was not the Japanese smile of politeness, but the, the universal smile of friendship. So, Martha, really, I do. It would be wonderful for you to be the first to do it. And it would be wonderful for all of us to be able to read what these people wrote. It would really bring this dead city to life again. The smile faded slowly. But it seemed so hopeless. You haven't found any more pictures? Sashiko shook her head. Not that it would have meant much if she had. They had found hundreds of pictures with captions. They had never been able to establish a positive relationship between any pictured object and any printed word. 
Neither of them said anything more. And after a moment, Sushiko replaced the loop and bent her head forward over the book. Salem von Olmhorst looked up from his notebook, taking his pipe out of his mouth. Everything finished over there? he asked, releasing a puff of smoke. Such as it was, she laid the notebooks and sketches on the table. Captain Jiquel started air-sealing the building from the fifth floor down, with an entrance on the sixth. He'll start putting in oxygen generators as soon as that's done. I have everything cleared up where he'll be working. Colonel Penrose looked up quickly, as though making a mental note to attend something later. Then he returned his attention to the pilot who was pointing something out on a map. Von Olmhorst nodded. There wasn't much to it at that, he agreed. Do you know which building Tony has decided to enter next? The tall one with the conical thing like a handle extinguisher on top, I think. I heard him drilling for the blasting shots all over that way. Well, I hope it turns out to be one that was occupied to the end. The last one hadn't. It had been stripped of its contents and fittings. A piece of this and a bit of that, haphazardly, apparently over a long period of time, until it had been almost gutted. For centuries, as it had died, this city had been consuming itself by a process of auto-cannibalism. She said something to that effect. Yes, we, we always find that, except of course at places like Pompeii. Have you seen any of the other Roman cities in Italy? He asked. Minterne, for instance. First the inhabitants tore down this to repair that, and then after they had vacated the city, other people came along and tore down what was left and burned the stones for lime or crushed them to mend roads till there was nothing left but the foundation traces. That's where we're fortunate. This is one of the places where the Martian race perished. 
and there were no barbarians to come later and destroy what they had left. He puffed slowly on his pipe. Some of these days, Martha, we're going to break into one of these buildings and find that it was one in which the last of these people died. Then, we will learn the story of the end of this civilization. And if we learn to read their language, we'll learn the whole story, not just the obituary. She hesitated, not putting the thought into words. We'll find that sometime, Selim, she said, then looked at her watch. I'm going to get some more work done on my lists before dinner. the old man's face stiffened in disapproval. He started to say something, thought better of it, and put his pipe back into his mouth. The brief wrinkling around his mouth and the twitch of his white moustache had been enough. However, she knew what he was thinking. She was wasting time and effort, he believed. Time and effort belonging not to herself, but to the expedition. He could be right too, she realized. But he had to be wrong. There had to be a way to do it. She turned from him silently and went to her own packing case seat at the middle of the table. Photographs and photostats of restored pages of books and transcripts of inscriptions were piled in front of her. And the notebooks in which she was compiling her lists. She sat down, lighting a fresh cigarette, and reached over to a stack of unexamined material, taking off the top sheet. It was a photostat of what looked like the title page and contents of some sort of periodical. She remembered it. She had found it herself two days before in a closet in the basement of the building she had just finished examining. She sat for a moment, looking at it. It was readable, 
in the sense that she had set up a purely arbitrary but consistently pronounceable system of phonetic values for the letters. The long vertical symbols were vowels. There were only ten of them, not too many. Allowing separate characters for long and short sounds. There were twenty of the short horizontal letters, which meant that sounds like or sh were single letters. The odds were millions to one against her system being anything like the original sound of the language, but she had listed several thousand Martian words, and she could pronounce all of them. (laughs) 